Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only one thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars, a saving of three hundred dollars only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hey Jim, good to be back. We thought that we might give this podcast a break during August, but we can't resist the temptation to come back because so much has been happening, both in the world of economics, but also in the world of markets, and indeed a lots of political and COVID developments as well. So here we are. We want to do four things today. The economic news flow is the most obvious agenda item, and that is top of our agenda. It's been a week where the environment has hit the headlines. Told this morning that the COVID crisis, absent for the first time in eighteen months, off the front page of the Irish Times, dominated by environment and associated news flow in the in the wake of that、uh, United Nations report. I want to talk a little bit about property. There's been some interesting developments about young people responding to ladders being pulled up behind them. Something we've talked about in Germany, of all places, and I wonder whether that's A portent of things to come, and of course, notwithstanding the fact that the Irish Times doesn't think it's front page news, COVID, of course, is still front and center of an awful lot of what we're talking about. So I think we'll be discussing the latest developments there. But I want to start with the economics news flow, and I know that you're on top of this in a way that I am not at the moment. So I'm going to hand straight over to you, and in particular, Jim, tell us about what's been happening in. Terms of the Irish economic data. Right. Good morning, Chris.、Um, w- welcome back. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of interesting stuff out of Ireland over the last couple of weeks. We got the exchequer returns to the end of July, for example, showing that 
overall taxes are up by 4 billion or 13% on the same period last year. And within that, income tax is 2.2 billion or almost 18% higher. That is 2.1 billion, 28.5% higher. So what all of this suggests is that there has been an amazing rebound in the Irish economy, particularly in consumer spending since the economy starts to reopen. And I guess this does not come as a surprise to us because we have spoken at great length over the last number of months, for example, about the buildup of personal savings in this country over the last 18 months. And indeed, we got further evidence of that from the central bank yesterday. So obviously, those savings are there because people couldn't spend and now they have the facility to spend and by God, are they spending? So I think from an overall economic perspective, that is good news. The Department of Finance released its annual taxation report um, earlier this week. And this is a report that is basically compiled from data that the revenue commissioners uh, produce. Okay. And um, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And I would recommend for anybody who wants to understand what's going on in the Irish tax system at the moment to take a look at that. But a few headlines certainly jump out. You know, they make the point, for example, that um, overall taxes last year fell by just 3.6% despite the pandemic. Whereas during the great financial crash, tax revenues basically uh, declined by a third over a very short space of time. So the impact of COVID on the tax base um, has been pretty muted. Um, income tax in particular has proved incredibly resilient. Um, and the reason for that, and we've spoken about this, no big surprises, but I think it is worth reiterating that the main damage from COVID-19 in terms of restrictions has been done to sectors that are income tax poor. In other words, the workers who have been most adversely affected are relatively low paid and they don't pay very much in tax anyway. So that's 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 one thing, certainly, that's um, significant. Uh, the other thing that kind of jumps out is the progressive nature of the Irish tax system. Um, the Department of Finance basically says that 80% of income tax is paid by the top 25% of earners in the Irish labour force, and the top 1% of earners pay 20%. So despite a lot of stuff out there, Ireland does have an incredibly... I just wanted to say, Jim, that this point about the progressive Irish tax system is a particular beef of mine. And for the record, I just want to say that my, my biggest argument with my erstwhile employers, the Irish Times, was a couple of years ago, when Fintan O'Toole, the great Irish commentator of the left, described me as being dishonest, and that's a quote, for saying that the Irish tax system is progressive. With all lefties, I think that this is a red rag, isn't it? When we people like you and I make a statement of fact that the Irish tax system is progressive, we get people coming out of the woodwork or indeed going to their pulpits, as Fintan O'Toole did, accusing us of lying. What do you think of those kinds of things? Well, the, the, the statistics certainly show us that the income tax system is incredibly progressive. And um, in fact, I tweeted uh, the statistics directly from the Department of Finance yesterday, and it has elicited an amazing response. 
Um, but, you know, a lot of people sort of saying, yeah, we know this, we work here, we realize it's, it's the income tax burden is pretty high on those who are doing relatively well. Um, but then you, you get all the arguments about um, the income inequality. In other words, there's a huge gap between um, incomes across the spectrum. OK, and that's to me, that is what the tax system is all about, is the redistribution of income. OK, and the tax system and the social welfare system are basically in place to make sure that those at the lower income spectrum actually are looked after financially. Um, and, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. So um, I just, you know, that that sort of response from Fintan O'Toole, I found extraordinary at the time. And there is no evidence to back up what he's actually saying. And um, I think, you know, as I say, anybody just take a look at this Department of Finance um, in our tax report just to see exactly what's going on. The other interesting um, aspect, and this is one we have spoken about as well, what's happening on the corporation tax side, 11.8 billion collected last year which is the highest level ever collected on the corporate sector. But 82% of those corporation taxes are collected from the multinational sector. And the top 10 multinationals actually contribute over half of the total corporation tax take. So that just shows you how dependent our tax base is on um, the multinational sector. And of course, the big challenge there is the imminent changes to the global corporation tax regime, the impact that might have on the Irish corporate tax take. And indeed, um, the Department of Finance is suggesting that those changes will knock at least two billion. But I think they haven't a clue at this juncture. Um, only time will answer that question. Yeah, I wouldn't be quite so pessimistic about the short term. The medium term is definitely there in terms of challenges with respect to those international corporation tax changes. But more, I suppose, prosaically, I've been looking at the tech profits, as you and I have done many times on this podcast, Jim. And of course, they're still exploding. These companies are awash in cash. Now, a lot will depend over the next year or so where they ultimately end up declaring these profits geographically and therefore where they pay their tax. But if, as we suspect strongly, that there is a relationship between the profits of the Googles, Facebooks, etc., etc., uh, or anything to go by, Ireland's tax take over the next year or two is going to be absolutely enormous from these companies, isn't it? Yes, it, it is indeed. Um, and the, as you say, the tech profits have tech profits have been incredibly strong. So the tech companies globally will be paying a lot of tax over the next couple of years, and obviously Ireland will benefit from that. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have any concerns. Uh, that the likelihood is that this year the corporation tax take will probably exceed last year's record level. So short term, it's good news. But I guess the longer term or the medium term, uh, the risk is there from those global corporation tax changes. But I, I reckon from a fiscal policy perspective, you know, one of the things we do need to be really careful about is to make sure that we do not spend aggressively on the basis of those possibly transitory tax revenues. That's something we did uh, back in 2007, 2008, um, and we paid a heavy price for that. So, you know, we, we need to build in these risks into our overall fiscal policy. There is no doubt about that. Uh, but as you say, I think um, as the economy reopens and as the global 
tech sector continues to perform very strongly, um, I wouldn't have too many problems about the public finances at this juncture, um, other than, of course, the fact that we have built up a significant legacy of debt as a result of COVID. Uh, But I think that if we get two or three years of current levels of growth in the Irish economy, that the fiscal situation will improve quite significantly. Um, I think there's little doubt about that. Um, Moving on to one other, um, I think, really interesting statistical release we've seen or report we've seen in the last few days, DAF.ie brought out its second quarter rental report and a lot of strong messages there as well for policymakers in the housing arena. Um, Rents in the second quarter up by 5.6%. Okay, that's strong growth coming on top of a rental market that has been on fire basically um, since 2011-2012. But within those headline statistics, um, a few points stand out to me. One is that in the second quarter, we saw the lowest number of rental properties since this series commenced back in 2006. Um, and the, the reasons for that, I think we can all speculate about uh, the imposition of those rent controls or those rent control zones um, is definitely forcing a lot of landlords out of the market. And indeed, the, uh, the Residential Tenancies Board shows that the, um, the RTB shows that we have seen a significant decline in the number of landlords over the last few years as landlords are becoming increasingly demonized in the system. And the second point, I guess, is the treatment and the attitude towards the investment funds. Um, We have discussed this before, and I certainly would have a view that the investment funds are an absolutely essential element of the rental market. And if you force those investment funds out of the system, well, then who is going to step in and provide the rental properties that this country very definitely needs. So I think we need to be very, very careful about populist responses to uh, the populist narrative that is out there, much of which actually is deeply flawed. And the final point that stands out is that um, in most counties in the country, according to DAF.ie, it is now cheaper to get a mortgage than to rent a property. Um, and I think when you when you get into that sort of situation, it does say something about the dysfunctionality of the rental market. But it also says something about what's happening on the mortgage side. Obviously, given the demand for rental properties um, and despite the fact that to get a mortgage is cheaper, a lot of people cannot get a mortgage. So that brings into uh, the debate the whole issue around the central bank's prudential Um, mortgage lending regulations and I know the central bank is reviewing those at the moment as it does every year and it'll be interesting to see if changes will be made but certainly the DAF.ie report does suggest that the rental market here is a serious pressure point in the economy and it's just one further part of that overall housing market difficulty. Yeah, we've talked about this before in the context of the, the way in which, or at least the way I described the older generation pulling up ladders behind it. And housing is, is one of those ladders, things like pensions, the environment, and there are plenty of others. This is a global phenomena, Jim. And so I'm a simple man, but also certainly a statistician of sorts. If something is happening everywhere, 
there must be at least one common driver. I suppose it's possible but that by sheer coincidence that each country has its own unique drivers of this housing problem, but somehow I doubt it. I think that the explanation is going to be, uh, there are going to be several factors involved, but th there's going to be at least one common to each country. And I keep saying that for as long as interest rates and therefore mortgage rates are as low as they are, this is going to be a problem. Now, and I've, also, I've asked the question, when are we going to see the young starting to revolt? To give an example about how this is a global problem and how the young might revolt, uh, there's been some interesting news this week out of Berlin, where they are taking, uh, or a group of renters are taking a legalistic approach to this and have called a referendum, which according to, I think it's Article 15 of the German Constitution, you can do this, it's going to happen next month, in which the proposal is to, and I'm quoting here, expropriate the rental properties of landlords, um, particularly those investment funds, who in Ireland we call vulture funds, uh, because they they don't maintain the the allegation is that they don't maintain the properties they've just been jacking rents up a familiar picture and the proposal is a very stark one that, that they want to take back from these landlords as I say the word is expropriate I think there's some kind of fair price calculation mentioned so I don't think it's it's for nothing but um, it's pretty radical stuff isn't it and I know it's only one straw in the wind Jim but I guess there are a few residential landlords around the place uh, looking at this somewhat disconcertedly. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating what's happening in Berlin. I, I've just finished reading uh, a book, Why the Germans Do It Well, by John Kempfner. And um, he allocates a few pages to uh, the, the whole property issue in Berlin and the, the, where, the wherewithal that people have in Berlin to actually vote for the expropriation of property from investment funds and um, as you can imagine, that does elicit quite a, an extreme response from both sides of the agenda. But it, 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 it is interesting and it just shows that in Berlin, for example, housing is regarded as a social public good. That's how they how they regard it. And I, I, I suspect, you know, you will see that sort of narrative um, gaining ground in many other countries. Uh, but I also do think we need to be very careful about knee-jerk reactions to this situation. Um, I just think um, one of the big issues here in this country certainly is the failure to deliver adequate housing supply. And it's there for a myriad of reasons. You know, it's not just one factor, but there are huge issues here in the planning system. Um, you know, there's a huge number of potential housing developments currently under judicial review so in other words they have been halted but because of legal actions um, the whole planning process is incredibly difficult to navigate despite the fact that they have tried to create a more rapid planning system there are issues about uh, the funding of developers um, and, and that's where the role of investment funds becomes incredibly important as well so there's lots of issues out there um, that preventing the adequate supply of property coming onto the market to satisfy owner-occupied demand and also rental demand. Um, but uh, for, for, for young people trying to get on the housing ladder or trying to rent, um, it is a massive issue. And that's why it will be really interesting to watch what actually happens in Berlin over the coming months.
Can I ask you a question, Jim? And it's a genuine question. It's not, it's, it's not intended to catch you out or anything, but it, it just occurs to me listening to you speak there that I'm old enough to remember, and actually it wasn't that long ago, in, in, in the middle of the noughties, where all of the headlines in the Irish Times and other journals was about oversupply of housing. We were building too many houses. Do you remember all that stuff? And then we had all those ghost estates around the country. Apparently the country was dotted with tens of thousands of houses in estates that nobody wanted to live in. What happened to all of that would be my first question. Did anybody ever go and live in those ghost estates? Secondly, if we can, in recent memory, have an oversupply problem, why is it such a big problem now on the other side of the fence? Okay, uh, that's a really interesting and loaded question, Chris. There's no doubt about that. Um, You know, we were building 95, 96,000 houses back in 2006, 2007. Uh, The problem, I think, was that many of those houses at the time were being built in areas where the demand didn't exist. So in other words, local authorities were actually giving planning permission for housing development because it was a key source of revenue because of the various development levies. So So are all those houses empty now? Well, a lot of them were actually destroyed and knocked. Others have been occupied. At a national level, it's estimated we have around 94, 95,000 vacant properties in the country at the moment. Some of those are derelict. Some are just vacant. But that's pretty small in the overall scheme of the housing stock. Um, The the, the problem, of course, was then um, in response to that perceived oversupply because of the wrong properties being built in the wrong areas. Um, We then had the crash. We then had the treatment of the developers. And um, I've I've spoken about this before on this podcast and elsewhere. I just believe that the approach of the National Asset Management Agency towards um, the developer class was wrong. Uh, They were all treated in a very, very hostile manner. And we, we, we do know that there were really good developers out there. Uh, they're really bad developers and a lot of mediocre developers, but they were all treated exactly the same way. So suddenly, if you demonize the developer class, if you take a lot of them out of business, um, that supply of housing obviously collapses, which it did. And I think it fell to a low of around 5,000 houses per annum um, at one stage a few years ago. We're going to build around 20, 21,000 this year. We need about 35,000. So we just don't have the development capacity. So I think the answer to your part of the answer to your question, Chris, is if you basically stop building houses in an environment where the population is growing and also the younger age cohort where household formation occurs is bulging now in a significant way you are going to have a serious problem. Uh, so what I hear you saying, Jim, is that we, we knew how to build 100,000 houses a year 15 years ago. So we've, we've done it recently and we've forgotten how to do it. Either we've forgotten how to do it or we simply don't know how to recreate the conditions that led to 100,000 houses a year being built. We don't have the capacity to look at the list of things that we did back then, the menu of policy choices that we made. We, and we don't have the capacity as a country to simply build them again, to simply do what we did back then. It's not as if we're trying to discover something new. We're trying to rediscover something that we apparently have had a great forgetting 
how to build 100,000 has yet. And I know that you're saying that one of the reasons, one of the reasons, and I acknowledge you say it's complicated, is that we have essentially destroyed the developer class. Um, I would say that you're now making the same mistake in a slightly different way in that you're trying, you, you, certainly from the headlines anyway, you're trying to destroy the vulture fund class, the investment funds, the people that actually have to put up the money initially to, to build these properties. So you're going away from solving the problem rather than going somewhere near to, to recreating it. And I go back to my point about interest rates. But it just is very strange to me that we can go from boom to bust in half a generation and forget how we did the boom. But let's leave it there and move well, on. Well, the, the, there are some significant structural differences today compared to 15 years ago. And one of those is we do not have a proper financing model for the delivery of housing. Uh, back then, a lot of it came through the banking system. And obviously, that did create massive problems for the banking system once the collapse occurred. Uh, but today, we do not have a funding model for the development of housing. Um, and, and another issue that's now start to become really apparent is the lack of capacity in the construction sector, because so many construction workers were taken out, left the country, went into alternative um, employment that uh, the capacity to deliver is now an issue. So it's going to take a long time to actually sort these problems. Mm, OK, do it. let's move on, shall we? Yes, indeed. Okay, one of the things that I also wanted to just briefly chat about today, um, because of the, the news flow, I guess, over the last while, and the fact that the the whole area scares us all to death, I suspect, unless you are an environmental sceptic um, or global warming sceptic, the latest report on global warming is indeed scary. And I just wanted to know, A, what, what you made of it and what you think about the policy choices facing Irish and indeed all all governments, whether or not those policy choices are likely to be made, and indeed how this debate, and this particularly interests me, saddens me in a way, has already become very politicised. And I'll start there, actually, while while you think about the the other stuff that I mentioned. Uh, One of the things that did the rounds on social media and indeed mainstream media this week were a whole bunch of left-wing commentators who seized on a statistic the provenance of which I've no idea. It, it sounds vaguely plausible, but I've no idea if it, is, if it is actually true. But it's been repeated often enough that it has become accepted wisdom that 71% of global carbon emissions are caused by 171 global companies. And they seem to know who these companies are. And the way left-wing commentators, analysts, and Twitter warriors have seized on this supposed statistic is to say that it's capitalism. It's the way in which we organize ourselves' fault. If you think about that for longer than two and a half seconds, you realize just how stupid that remark actually is. Even if that statistic is true and you delve into it, you will discover that an awful lot of those 170 companies are power generators. And so the reason why carbon is emitted into the atmosphere is because of us and it's got nothing to do with the political system look at china for example which has a somewhat different uh, system to our own um, look at india the second biggest uh, one of the the biggest top three emitters of carbon that has a, a slightly different system as well and so the thing that really bugs me about this is the way that it's already a, a left right 
political thing. Instead of being an analytical scientific thing, this is a problem, how are we going to solve it? We start throwing bricks and rocks at each other from a political ideological perspective. So that the left wing says that it's all capitalism's fault. And as lefties often say about all sorts of different things, it's somebody else's fault. It's not our fault. And the right wing are just as bad as the, the lefties, or at least some of them are, because we, that's where all the climate change deniers um, live. You'll often find that climate change denial goes with an awful lot of right wing views, libertarian views. If, if you are a Trump supporter in the United States, you're probably an environmental skeptic. If you are a Brexit supporter in the United Kingdom, you're probably a climate change denier. It's really weird, disappointing that this has become so politicized and both sides are grievously at fault. I started with the criticism of lefties and I finished with the criticism of right wingers. But that leads me to the policy question, because if you if you think that we, we stand a chance from a policy perspective of enacting enough change to deal with this problem effectively before it becomes totally disastrous. I think we're starting from the wrong place. Yeah, Chris, I remember um, a number of years ago, it's probably 10 years plus at this stage, I took part in a uh, an investment seminar for the Irish Association of Corporate Treasurers on the investment implications of climate change. And I was just back from a period in the United States and I, there was a lot of debate going on in the States at that stage about, amongst the scientific community, about, okay, there was an acceptance that carbon emissions were increasing significantly, uh, but there was a debate going on whether this was man-made or whether it was just, you know, a natural thing. So there was that debate going on. So I prefaced my remarks that day by alluding to this debate that was going on in the States. And there was a climate scientist in the UK on the panel and he stood up and left the arena roaring abuse at me. I, I wasn't, I, I am not a climate change denier. Um, and in fact, uh, to me, um, Al Gore's book and film, An Inconvenient Truth, um, really got me thinking about this issue in a serious way. Uh, but Back then, it just showed you how difficult it is to even discuss the topic. And, and as you say, you know, it has become incredibly polarized. Uh, but the, the bottom line is, I think for anybody who tries to deny what's going on, um, the report from the United Nations this week, the report from the EPA this morning um, coming from UCC relating to what's happening in Ireland, um, you know, is a very, very late wake up call. There is a serious crisis upon us and it's only going to get worse. And um, we really across society, we really have got to take very significant, dramatic action at this stage to do something about this. The Central Statistics Office yesterday published its latest transport update and it showed that car traffic volumes in Dublin at the end of July were back at 87% of July 2019 levels and at a national level back at 90%. There was a lot of nonsense spoken over the last 12 months about how COVID would change people's behaviour. They would never revert to doing what they were doing pre-COVID, etc., etc., um, I always regarded that as nonsense. 
Um, I always believed that people would get back as quickly as possible to doing what they previously did. And certainly there are very, very strong indications from those traffic statistics, for example, that, um, you know, people are reverting. And, and I can see it every morning on my early morning walk. You can see traffic volumes just increasing by the day. So the car culture in this country is very much um, alive and thriving. So um, I tweeted these statistics yesterday again and um, elicited uh, a, a strong debate and also demonstrated the um, polarized nature of this debate. But I was sort of in, in conversation with somebody online saying that, you know, people really need to take personal responsibility for this. They need to look at their behavior. You know, do I need to use my car for everything I'm doing? You know, could I walk to the shop? Could I walk my kids to school? Um, we, we've got to start thinking about all of these measures. Uh, but a guy I know responded um, very aggressively and sort of said that how dare the two of us um, advising people and questioning whether people should be using their cars or not. And here we have a libertarian who believes that, you know, we should we should all do basically what we want to do. Uh, but it, it does demonstrate, as you say, the polarized nature of this. But there is a massive crisis that we really, really have to address. We're running out of time, Jim. And as always, there's a lot left to discuss next time. But you just raised the libertarian friend of yours. And one of the things that I find very curious, very interesting is the way in which Ireland, relative to certainly the UK, where I'm sitting, and most definitely the United States, the class of people who inhabit weirder corners of Facebook and YouTube with conspiracy theories, ideological nutcase, absolute looney tune ideas, uh, which give rise to things like vaccine denial in the context of COVID and many other things, but also climate change denial. Ireland doesn't really have quite, despite the fact that your friend contacted you, it's really interesting that Ireland doesn't have these nutters um, to any great extent, certainly to the extent that you're, one of the reasons why your vaccine program is now better than the UK's is that you don't have that many vaccine deniers sitting there saying, I'm not going to take the vaccine because it's a global conspiracy by the Rothschilds or it's Bill Gates putting a chip inside me and all these other completely looney tune ideas. And I just want to conclude, because we, as I say, we've run out of time, in, in three bullet points or less, Jim, why do you think Ireland in this particular regard has less Looney Tunes than the rest of the world? Okay, uh, the, the Loonies would argue that we're so compliant that we're a crowd of sheep and that we just do what we're told to do. Um, I actually don't buy that narrative. I think we are a pretty pragmatic people. Um, you know, we... We we, 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 we we don't it, it's interesting I know um, and I have exposure to some people with extremely strong views anti-vaccine anti-mask um, and so on but they get absolutely no resonance whatsoever um, in, 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 in the popular debate here so I, I think we are a pragmatic people I think we're a sensible people we realise you know, this is what needs to be done. No histrionics. We just get on and do it. And um, if you, if I, 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 there was an interesting series of interviews a couple of weekends ago. The first weekend, they actually opened the walk-in vaccine centres 
here in Ireland, which have been an incredible success because a lot of young people were interviewed, queuing up to get vaccines. And I didn't hear one response suggesting we got the vaccine because we're afraid of picking up COVID. We got the vaccine because we realized this is the only way we can go into restaurants, pubs, socialize, live our lives. So it's pragmatism. Um, and, it's, and a shame, are, it's a shame you can't apply that same pragmatism to building more houses. But, it um, certainly is, absolutely. Um, I think we should probably call it a day there. There's a lot left there for us to pick up next time, a few threads. So I look forward to that. So thanks again, Jim, and see you next time. Great, Chris. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.